Thank you, guys. Appreciate the work that you do. And I'll tell you, it, it really is. And it's uh, a really important work. Um, and if you've ever uh, dealt with somebody in transition like that, it, it is amazing how much need there is there. And so please continue to keep them in prayer. And, you know, if the Lord moves on your heart to, to help financially, then that would be good. They're uh, uh, starting to partner with other uh works in this area as well uh, to help with, with, you know, expansion into housing and stuff like that. So certainly uh, keep them uh, in prayer. In fact, just real quick, let me, let me pray for you guys. Father, we just lift up this ministry that, that really has started as this grassroots desire to meet a need that was uh, unmet in, in many ways. And we just pray, Father, that you continue to bless the work that Greg and all of those that are involved in it are doing. We pray, Lord, that you give them wisdom and guidance as they're counseling and as they're uh, leading and guiding people through these challenging transitions. And we pray, Father, that you provide for every need that they have and that you'll enable them to continue on doing this good work because this, Father, is the work of the kingdom of heaven. This is what you described to us, that we're looking out for those who are marginalized and in need and representing that amazing love of God to them in practical ways. So bless the work that they're doing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, listen, uh, we're going to get into our study this morning. Uh, the French mathematician Blaise Pascal once said, people never do evil so cheerfully as when they do it in the name of God. And all we have to do is turn on the news and we see right away that religion can actually not only be a, a, a platform for all sorts of actions and attitudes that are immoral and hurtful, religion in many ways can be a dangerous thing. Religion in and of itself. And that's the qualifier that I want to put on that. That, that um, you know, there's no doubt that within the sphere of the Christian church, religion can go bad. We've often heard the phrase, I'm sure you've heard it before, that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And I don't disagree with the sentiment behind that, but technically speaking, Christianity is a religion. Uh, but it's one that has an emphasis on a dynamic relationship with our creator as over against ritualistic traditions that are just done out of rote. You've heard me talk uh, for years and years about the crazy church that, that I came out of. And if you don't know what I'm talking about when I say that, I was, my formative years as a Christian were spent in an independent, charismatic church that was highly legalistic and very controlling and did a lot of damage to myself and my family. Honestly, Eastgate is here as a response to that because it was my twisted psyche that was trying to recover from those kinds of things that, that, that caused us to kind of plant our, our own church. But, but you know, the, the fact of the matter is no one is immune from religion going bad. I mean, no one's immune from that. We're, we're not somehow insulated and, and inoculated from the dangers of that simply because we started off with a, with a desire to do something good. Listen, the crazy church started off with good intentions that, that went bad. And so we're going to consider that subject today. We're going to be continuing our verse-by-verse -verse study of the Gospel of Luke. If you've got a Bible or a Bible app, if you'll go to Luke 21, please. Last week, we read a lengthy section where Jesus was forecasting the end of the temple age and the beginning of a new one, the church age. And we considered from those verses 
how we should be living in light of the finish line, whether we're talking about the end of one age, whether we're talking about the end of this age or the end of just our lives uh, on this earth because of our own mortality, how should we live? How should that affect the way we live here and now? So today we're going to read a very short section and we'll pray and hope that that means that I'll be talking for a short amount of time. We'll see. I, I'm hoping. Uh, but we'll be finishing up chapter 21, starting chapter 22. And we're going to see some examples of religion that has gone bad and see what we can learn from that. Not just to scold those who maybe messed things up along the way, but to, to examine our own hearts, our own lives, our own community and see to it that we're, we're staying on the path that God set us on. So what happens when religion goes bad? How can we be aware of it in our own lives? What can we uh, do to avoid the trap of bad religion? So that's what we're going to consider today. If you're there in Luke chapter 21, we're going to pick up where we left off, starting with verse 37. Remember, Jesus is in Jerusalem with his disciples, and it says there that every day Jesus went to the temple to teach, and each evening he returned to spend the night on the Mount of Olives. The crowds gathered at the temple early each morning to hear him. Then we go on to chapter 22. The festival of the unleavened bread, which is also called, called Passover, was approaching. The leading priests and teachers of religious law were plotting how to kill Jesus, but they were afraid of the people's reaction. Okay, we're going to stop here for a minute because this, you know, this sets the stage for us. The whole reason, if we remember, as we've been reading through this gospel, that Jesus is in Jerusalem is he's there to celebrate the annual Passover uh, uh, festival. That's something that every Jewish person would have done and always you'd congregate back into Jerusalem if you were able to do so. Now, Jerusalem would have been crowded, I mean, overrun. Their population swells to triple its size during times like this. And Luke gives us some interesting details in this, I think. He tells us that Jesus would spend his days teaching at the temple. You know, there's colonnades that surround the temple, so he would have been in there. And likely that's where that would take place. Oftentimes, rabbis would gather their disciples around and have what's called a midrash. So they, you know, have this this teaching session, basically. And that's what Jesus was doing, and crowds were gathering around him. But then it, it says that in the evening, he'd go to the Mount of Olives with his disciples. And what we have to factor into our mental image of this is that the Mount of Olives was probably a very crowded place at that time. Jerusalem, as I said, was overrun with people every year at the Passover. So people end up would end up camping all, all around the city, like within the city if they could, if they had family. But if not, they'd be out in the, in the edges. The Mount of Olives was likely a very popular place for people to set up their camps. So think in terms of a, a music festival. You know, you go to a music festival and everybody's got their campsites and everything's set up. And, you know, there's kind of a fun, festive buzz. And there would Gulf Coast jams going on down the street. So, I mean, it's that same kind of uh, buzz that's happening in that. And that's what was happening in Jerusalem. But it's surrounded around the cultural and, and, and you know, cultural and religious heritage of the Jewish people. So the Mount of Olives would have been, you know, just filled with campsites everywhere. Luke tells us that's where Jesus and his crew put up their campsite. And that's one of those details, like, if you've been around here at all, you know that I just cannot stand movies about Jesus. They're just, by and large, because if you care at all about the narrative here and the details of it and the history and everything that goes into it, most movies don't come anywhere close to that. I mean, there's just nothing out there. But that's one reason why, and this is not a plug for a small group, but I do like that show, The Chosen. It's a, 
it's a crowdfunded series, but that's one of those things that they at least took the time to add in. The whole idea of the campsite, the, the nomadic sense of how this Messiah was moving uh, through the world. But anyway, each morning they'd go back to the temple and Jesus would spend his time teaching the people who were gathered here. So it seems idyllic. Really, when you're looking at this picture of it, you know, you, it, I mean, you, you think back, the kids got back from a youth camp and they had that time uh, with each other and in and, and, and the presence of the Lord. And then uh, I can remember as a kid going to camps where my dad was a preacher and it was just something beautiful about that. You get out into nature, you'd have this time together, you'd, you know, have these moments with the Lord. And it's just a beautiful picture. But then chapter 22 opens up with the backroom machinations of the religious leaders and the picture they reveal is not as idyllic. Uh, as people are gathering from all over to celebrate the great deliverance God provided to the Israelites and setting them free from slavery in Egypt, delivering them from death at the original Passover, their leaders were trying to figure out how to bring about the capture and the death of someone that they disagreed with. And that's what I would call bad religion. And the horrifying thing is the religious leaders saw themselves as justified in what they were doing. We got to understand this is not some two-dimensional cardboard, you know, snidely whiplash people that are looking around for ways to hurt someone. These are people who are absolutely convinced that they're doing what God wants them to do. They thought they were doing God's will. And I think that there's something very important to learn right off the bat when it comes to uh, trying to steer ourselves away from or allowing God to steer us away from bad religion. And that is that religion will go bad if we assume that our goals are God's goals. The temple leaders in Jerusalem saw themselves as stewards of the kingdom of God. They were the protectors of God's ways. They were guardians of God's truth. And honestly, that's what they were supposed to be. But somewhere along the way, they lost sight of God's original intent, not just for them, but for all of Israel. We've said before, Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. That's what God had called them to be, a beacon of hope for all people. Remember the promise that started the nation of Israel. God met with Abraham and said, through you, Abraham, in other words, through your family, through the Jewish people, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Yet by Jesus's day, they were anything but a light. They had walled themselves off in this fortress of purity and their obsession with separation from anything that that was deemed unclean, fostered this terrible sense of elitism uh, among them. Beyond that, they began using their positions of leadership to exercise power over people, the model of this world. And that, more than anything else, fueled their disdain for Jesus and his welcoming message to, to everyone. And they fell into step with the world's goals of nationalism and power and wealth. And they leveraged the practices of this broken world to achieve their goals through political subterfuge, as we're seeing here, through coercion, even down to killing someone that they disagree with. And all the while, they're convinced they're doing exactly what God wants them to do. They were willing to plot the murder of a man they knew was innocent, His only crime was that he disagreed with them. And they were plotting something expressly forbidden in the Ten Commandments in order to maintain their grasp on the world's kind of power, power over people. And all of this was in the name of being faithful to God. 
And in fact, I honestly believe they felt good about what they were doing. Getting together, to, you know, they're plotting something, they're planning something. Luke is describing it in this with this sense of horror, but I'm sure they didn't have that. I'm sure they were like congratulating each other. We're going to figure this out. Now, as I've said many, many times before, it's, you know, one thing to identify the, the issues of religious leaders from 2,000 years ago and just say, mm, look what you did. But that's not what the Bible's about, right? The Bible's not about how we can correct somebody else. The Bible is here to speak to us. It's the mirror that we hold up to see where we are in, in life. So what about us? Are we pursuing goals that we assume, or maybe I should say presume, are God's goals when they're really just things that kind of stoke our fires, that get us uh, interested? And listen, there is a plethora of stuff that I could list off that seems to occupy the evangelical church of our nation, and, and it certainly doesn't appear to have any sort of biblical mandate behind it. And I mean, time's too short to, to, to go into all of that. And to be honest, it's an absolute minefield if I try to talk about the various political agendas that churches want to get involved in or ch- church people take up that have no priority established in Scripture whatsoever. I'm downright, I mean, I'm just, I'm being honest with you. I'm downright skittish to even get near this sort of stuff. But it is stuff that has to be considered. It's stuff we have to think about and examine and and present ourselves before God's word and before the Holy Spirit to see how he may guide and lead or correct uh, us in this. I mean, you know, we examine our attitudes and our actions and our words wherever they're found. I'm aware of, you know, in these past few years, churches and pastors who go so caught up in the QAnon sense that it became their primary cause. And they were known as people who were all involved in that to promote the dubious conspiracy theories that you find all over the interwebs. It, even though Isaiah eight twelve warns us not to chase after conspiracy theories, Don't call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. Don't fear what they fear and don't dread it. That's the words of the Lord to us. We're called to put our trust in God, not our our cleverness or ability to, to uncover something that might be nefarious. And it's very exciting to think about. I understand it's really, you know, one of those things we want to feel like we're in the know on something going on. But it's easy, and I've, you know, I'm, I'm witnessing it happen with churches and church leaders. It's easy to adopt that as a goal, put a Christian spin on it, and presume that chasing conspiracies is God's goal too. I, did I just hear a cricket? Anyway, <laughs> listen, we have to look at our own goals and our own attitudes. Each of us has to do that. So I'm not trying to you know, set somebody up, some straw man argument. Each of us, all, we all have to do that. I have to do that and, and, and put the hard question to it. Is this God's goal or is this my goal? The, do I have a biblical mandate to pursue, to passionately pursue whatever this is? Does that pursuit look like Jesus and his ministry? And, and will it make me more like Jesus as I'm pursuing this? Well, shoot, Rob, I'd have to give up half my goals in life if I used that as a litmus test. (laughs) (laughs) I have yet to go to my doctor and have him say to me, 
don't worry about what you're eating. And, you know, those lab results, forget about all of that. Symptoms, <laughs> just try to be happy. He won't do that because he cares about me. He, he cares about my well-being. And I'm just saying. There's another thing from verse 2 that strikes me concerning bad religion. Let's reread verse 2. The leading priests and teachers of religious law were plotting how to kill Jesus, but they were afraid. What were they afraid of? The people's reaction. The hypocrisy of this is sickening. Uh, Even though that they've convinced themselves that they're out doing God's wills, pursuing God's goal, in this murderous plot, they still won't act on it because they're afraid of public opinion. And it really shows that God himself, even though they felt like they were doing God's will, God himself had become diminished in their thinking, abstracted in their thinking. And that's the danger in this. They were more afraid of the crowds than of God. Actually, it was the crowds and the Roman Empire. They were, it, was, it was a mixture because if the religious leaders tried to arrest Jesus publicly because he was presently popular, it could start a riot, which was precisely what Rome did not want. And if these leaders wanted to keep their positions of power, then they were going to have to do a good job of keeping the peace in order to keep Rome happy. So they were going to have to find a way to do this with subterfuge in a way that would steer public opinion in their favor. And what we observed here, and, and, you know, and this is something we talk about a lot uh, around here, but religion goes bad when we prioritize a good outward appearance over an honest heart. The religious leaders were going to work all the angles until they could achieve their goals while maintaining places of prestige. So that meant they had to keep their real purposes hidden. And there it is. And the gospel accounts are without fail, always compassionate when dealing with everyday sinners, people who openly lived out of sync with God's stated purposes in the law of Moses, prostitutes and tax extortionists and Sabbath breakers always were dealt with with compassion by Jesus. But when it comes to hypocrisy, the Bible is sort of like Gordon Ramsay, just like all up in your face. What is this? (laughs) The Bible reserves nothing. And this is something to take note of, something that we recognize. Okay, this becomes important when we understand God's values. The Bible reserves nothing but scorn for play acting at religion. And we've got this classic situation of religious leaders wanting to keep respectable PR all while harboring a murderous intent. And the whole thing is that this reveals that they did their religious stuff for show so that they looked right and good and maintained public approval. But it didn't have any bearing on their heart. They, they made such allowances for this free-range hatred that they had for someone that they disagreed with. Now, let's be real about this. Again, we're holding up the mirror of God's word, trying to see what's going on here in our own lives. Everybody is guilty on some level of being hypocritical. 
mean, if we're just going to be honest about that, I mean, this is just the reality of it. All of us have a desire on some level to protect our image of projecting only what looks good so that we get the approval of others or that people will at least look up to us. Social media is the drug of choice when it comes to that sort of behavior. To varying degrees, we all struggle and stumble when it comes to this issue of presenting one thing while being something else. You know, when people, you've heard me tell this one before, but when people say, I don't go to church, I won't come to church because it's full of hypocrites. And I always say, it's not full. There's room for one more. Come on in, join us. We're all tempted to have an Instagram faith, one that looks great to those that are scrolling past, but man, it's got a lot of filters on it to make it look a lot better than it really is. And this is something we can all be yielding to the work of the Holy Spirit to begin transforming and changing our attitudes, changing our our values on this. It's something that we all, you know, have to, to wrestle with at times to varying degrees. But what's highlighted here, what's being talked about here in this passage is a systematic hypocrisy, an institutionalized, intentional approach to spirituality that focuses on the externals and never touches or transforms the heart. So the lesson for us as the church, you know, as Eastgate, as the Christians, the the followers of Jesus who make up the church, the lesson for us is that if we want to avoid bad religion, we need to develop a culture of honesty here where we're honest about our struggles, where We're honest about our failures or our doubts, and we are not fearful of being condemned because of that. But we're lovingly acknowledged in those places. We need to be a space where we're given room to work through the things that we have to work through as human beings grappling with something as profound as our relationship to the divine. We've got to have room to be able to do that. We have to allow room for the Holy Spirit to do that. And I think so much religion goes bad when we usurp that role of the Holy Spirit, when we determine to get in there and try to get everybody fixed instead of allowing space. Yeah, but did you hear what that person said? Yeah, I heard it. It's okay. God heard it too, you know that? And he's actually really good at all this transformation stuff. In fact, we're really bad at it when we try to get in there and do it. So let's give him space to do what he does. Because listen, it's only within a culture where we can be free and be honest about who we are. That's the only way that tangible change will take place in our lives. Because as long as we're afraid of being condemned by the surrounding community or culture, we're going to begin the process of hiding. You know, well, I can't let anybody see that because I could get in so much trouble over that. And maybe then that never gets dealt with because it's hidden down over here. Do you think that's what Jesus wanted? I mean, he breaks into this world to bring his grace and the good news that we can be reconciled with God. Do you think he wanted it to turn into something where we police each other and make each other afraid? so that change can't take place because we can't talk about whatever it is. We need to be a culture where we're not afraid of being judged for being honest and where we're not afraid of an honest question that may come up. I know of a a person who is no longer uh, considering themselves a believer 
because he began to have some questions. Uh, and he was, you know, leading worship at the time, had some questions. And when he went to talk about the questions, uh, the response was to remove him from any kind of position and not talk about it. And, and, and we sit back and try to figure out, why is everybody leaving the church? <laughs> What's happening here? We need to pick up the mirror. We need to pick up that mirror. We do way too much looking at the faults of our culture and the faults of whatever it is that we see as out there in them. We need to spend a little bit more time with us and what the Holy Spirit might be saying to us. Anyway, Jesus never seemed interested in looking respectable. We always remember that. He was always interested in getting at the heart. Well, let's keep reading. Uh, Verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12 disciples. And he went to the leading priests and captains of the temple guard to discuss the best way to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted, and they promised to give him money. So he agreed and began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus so they could arrest him when the crowds weren't around. All right, and that's where we're going to stop today. But man, what a phrase. Like, what a phrase. Like, this is not, I don't want to be the person who's remembered for this. (laughs) Satan entered into Judas. So around the same time that the Sanhedrin was trying to formulate a plot to murder Jesus, something enters into Judas Iscariot's mind and heart, which turns him from disciple to enemy. Satan, or the Satan, uh, as it's always referred to in Scripture, means enemy or accuser. And I don't think we should infer from this that somehow Judas was possessed and without control of his actions, but that this mysterious enemy, the Satan, as the Bible frequently identifies it, put a thought in his head that infected his priorities and his motives. Now, we know from John 12 that Judas wasn't being honest with the money bag that he was in charge of all along. But, you know, stealing a little bit of money here and there, skimming off the top, that is a far cry from this sort of betrayal. Uh, This is a big leap. His deepest motives, Judas's deepest motives are always going to be a mystery to us. We're not, we're not privy to that apart from this clue that the Satan introduced it to him. So where the religious leaders are waiting for their chance to, to capture Jesus quietly and out of sight somewhere, one of his own followers takes the initiative to set this plan uh, in motion. And verse 5 is as sad as it is simplistic. The religious leaders are so stoked to hear that Jesus, that Jesus has a defactor and uh, Judas comes to them with this plan. They offer to give him money. And Luke doesn't give the amount, but we know from the other gospel accounts it was 30 pieces of silver, which was not a huge sum of money, even in that time. But factoring John's accusation about the money bag, we see that Judas did have a love for cash, clearly more than he did for God. And so to me, this is one of the most stunning realizations in the passage. But I believe it's teaching us that Religion goes bad when self-interest supplants our loyalty to God. When all of a sudden, and this goes back to the first point, you know, about our goals and God's goals, when self-interest begins to supplant and and take over. This is why self-sacrificial love is always, and I mean always, prioritized in the biblical narrative. And that sometimes it becomes a stumbling block. Because sometimes we look at living sacrificially for Jesus, like if I do this, you know, what about me? Like if, if I live sacrificially like this, then I'm going to be, you know, diminished somehow. But it's actually just the opposite of that from the biblical narrative. 
Back at the beginning of last chapter, chapter 21, Jesus was at the temple and he pointed out a widow who gave all that she had to God. And Jesus saw her and he praised her. By valuing God, she actually revealed her own value. By valuing God to that degree that she would live and love sacrificially, her value becomes present. Jesus saw it. That sacrificial act of love, it didn't diminish her. It actually enlarged her. It drew out into the open how meaningful, how completely invaluable she is to God. This chapter opens at the other end of that contrast with Judas, who didn't value God or Jesus, and by extension, didn't value himself because he was happy enough to betray Jesus for a sum of money that was actually considered an insult in the Near Eastern ancient world. There was a time, like we'll say, you know, I wouldn't give two nickels for that. That's a phrase. 30 pieces of silver was a phrase like that. It was used to describe a paltry sum of something. We so often think that we have to put ourselves first. Like Judas was thinking when he apparently saw where all of this was heading. It wasn't going to be like he thought it was. There was no army getting raised. They weren't ready to, to pounce on the Romans. And so he felt like he had to take control of this so that he himself didn't get diminished. We think we have to prioritize our own interests and self-centric desires or we'll be meaningless and we'll be unimportant somehow. But again, it's just the opposite of that that's revealed to us in God's word. Both of these characters have been remembered down through history. If I say the widow and her two mites, you immediately, if you've been around at all, even in, on a cultural level, besides any religious training, you, you can put it together. What, what that is. She's gone down through history, notable forever, because of the object of her sacrificial love. Judas is notorious forever because of the same. The difference, though, was the object of their love. The difference comes down to who each was loyal to. Religion goes bad when self-interest crowds out our loyalty to God. If we go through life looking for, for the things that, that we think will establish us or, or working our way through things that we feel offended by, if we're constantly looking out for ourselves, either trying to protect ourselves or, or make ourselves meaningful, our lives get so much smaller, smaller by degrees all the time. But if we can go through life looking for God's purposes, then all of a sudden life takes on a different meaning altogether. Life becomes this, this wide open adventure. doesn't mean it's not filled with pain and difficulties. Every adventure is. But it is so meaningful. And it provides us with such a sense of value to know that we're in sync with the one who made us coming back to original vocation, to be representatives of who he is, his love and his grace in this world. So let's learn the lesson uh, of this short section that we have here. Let's see to it that our, our life of following Jesus doesn't just devolve down into another example of bad religion that we see everywhere. Let's examine our goals and let's see to it that they're God's goals. It's what God intends for us. Let's prioritize honesty in our faith and create a generous culture that allows for that kind of honesty. And it 
It requires a generous culture to be honest. And let's be careful to keep our loyalties attached to God and not to our own selfish interest. Let's determine to avoid bad religion. And let's see if we can reveal something better to the world around us. Right on? All right, very cool. Just stand with me, please. So, Father, as is our practice, we come and we present ourselves before your word. And we trust you, Lord, by your spirit to to do the work that only you can do. And that is to to reshape us, to, to bring us into conformity with what we see in your word, with the goodness of your word, with the grace that you've revealed to this world. Help us, Father, to, to yield to the potter's hands as he works to form us, how you reshape us, how you bend us sometimes when we didn't want to go there, but how we don't break when we yield to you. Father, do that work in our lives. Steer us and guide us so that we can rightly represent what your kingdom is like, what your grace is all about, what your love means to us as the human race. We pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I've heard a thousand stories of what they think you're like, but I've heard the tender whisper of love in the dead of night you tell me that you're pleasing that I'm never You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I am. I've seen many searching for
everything else, Lord, passes by. Faith, hope, and love. Faith will find its resolution one day. The thing we believed in will come to pass. Same with hope. One day it's fulfilled. But love has no envelope. Love goes on forever. Your love for us, the one eternal thing, let that one eternal thing define us as a people, Lord God. Let your love your great love for the human race, which includes each of us, be that thing that defines us and be what it is that we broadcast into this world. I pray that for us, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.